Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is Will Calling, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Luke Medub and Simon Alvey and Simon. How goes that great moment of the revival of liberalism we were people were talking about a few months ago? Um, I mean, it's it, it's had better days, but you know, um, Macron won the first round. There was some there was some some rather excited and some rather excitable people who were typing. I think only with one hand who were claiming that, you know, maybe Macron wouldn't, you know, wouldn't do very, wouldn't get out of it and would, you know, it would, it would all, we'd have a massive shock and maybe, you know, it would be Le Pen versus Mélenchon, which I mean really would be heralding the end of days. But, you know, look, Emmanuel Macron remains the favourite to win the French presidency in the second round. It's very, it's, it's probably going to be tight. It's probably going to be similar, you know, it's going to look, it's going to be a lot tighter than it was in 2017, but you know, and it, but you know, let's be clear about this. There is a chance that Marine Le Pen, a woman who has in the past campaigned on withdrawing France from the euro, which would basically mean withdrawing France from the European Union, um, and someone who has some extremely unpleasant views toward a wide range of minorities, and would clearly like to essentially make. Um, France, a sort of anti-Muslim uh, state, um, has a distinct chance of winning the French presidency. Yeah, so uh, before, before we bring Luke in, because I, I think um, I, 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 I think we talked about this on Twitter and also in a WhatsApp group, I, I, I thought your pushback on people on the one-handed brigade was probably, a, probably went a bit too far um, because I think I, I saw someone last week say Basically, Le Pen's got a shot, like Scottish independence has a shot in 2014. And that, to me, feels about right. Like, she's probably going to lose. It's probably going to be fairly comfortable in the end, you know, somewhere between uh, 15 and 5 percentage point victory for Macron. But given the cataclysm that may ensue from a Le Pen victory, this is quite an uncomfortable position to be in. And I think one of the key things is, is that, yes, Macron's vote went up and it went up just a bit more than Le Pen's vote went up from 2017 based on the first round. So Macron's went up about 3 4%. Le Pen's went up about 2 3%. Um, but the difference between then and now is in 2017, there wasn't another far-right candidate, whereas this time there was, there was Eric Zemmour, you know, Spectator's chosen candidate that they had spent most of the past year hyping up. And, like, he performed abysmally, only got 7%, although that was good enough for fourth. But when you add them together, you get 30% for the far-right, which when you think, you know, on the first round, the far right has never got more than 22, 20, 22%, which is what, because this is one of the things people don't realise is actually Le Pen in 2017 on the first round still did a bit worse, just the same as the far right did in 2002, because you had her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, but you also had one of his former allies stand as like a splinter candidate in a way that didn't happen in 2017. So like this is, the, the far right has broken out 
of its 20%-ish um, level of support. It's kind of been bobbing along around uh, since 2002, a bit lower when Sarkozy managed to take a lot of their voters, a little bit higher in 2017, um, and they've gone past 30%. And the other thing is, is Mechelon also did better, the, the, the third place candidate, the far left candidate, who, while it's a bit like Jeremy Corbyn, who, while he himself... Um, has a sophisticated slash uh, cognitive dissonance take on politics to not see the way his anti-system, conspiratorial, um, uh, the people versus the powerful uh, uh, politics overlaps with the far right. Some of his voters, um, they hear the dog whistles, even if the guy blowing the whistle can't. And some of them are willing to vote for the far right or the very least abstain. And we'll, we might return to that question of abstention in a minute. So actually, basically, not only do you have the, the far right hitting, you know, levels that would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago, you also have the, the broader anti-system um, chunk of the electorate actually pass 50% for the first time. And that's being quite, tight with your definition of anti-system you know not not including say the french greens as an anti-system party so yeah this 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 could be bad uh luke as you know a noted uh person who for your interest in foreign countries elections what say you <laughs> uh, if you if you didn't if you didn't catch the uh if you didn't catch the hint of sarcasm in Will's voice, that was sarcasm. No, it's just I've listened to I've listened to enough American podcasts with galaxy brain takes on British electoral politics to just have a little bit of humility when I'm talking about another country. No, politics. I'm sorry, Luke. You, you will make you're dressing this up to make you sound more internationalist and humble than you are. You don't care. You if if, if you put guns to your head yesterday, so you have to watch the elect, election programming from either France or the 1992 general election from Britain, you'd have sat down on YouTube and watched the 1992 oh, general yeah. election. Look, I'm a, a Brexiteer. I'm, a, I'm yeah. a Brexiteer. What are you... But, I mean, the, 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 just to go back to, to what you were saying about Mélenchon and his supporters, I saw some exit polling that suggested that his support breaks down into roughly equal thirds between voting for Le Pen Voting for Macron and abstaining. Yes, I, I've I've seen that. I, I think the I, I'm sure I've read somewhere like the vote for Macron. It's not thirds. It's more that Macron and Le Pen get roughly the ratio that they that they that they already have. If that makes any sense. So Macron's Macron's a bit ahead of Le Pen amongst Macron vote voters, but no more ahead. Danny, he is amongst the general population, and yeah, and then yes, there's this big glob that is roughly a third who are just not going to vote. I mean, um, I mean, I mean, what what I what I'd be interested to know from you guys is what do you think has brought us here to a situation where, like you're saying, well, fifty basically half the electorate want to burn the entire system to the ground. I think it's. I mean, it's. It's. it's I mean. 
we're ignoring the fact that, and I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be naive enough to call Emmanuel Macron anti-system, but he is leading a party that was founded in 2016. Yeah, um, well, then that, happens, you know, that happens all the time. That's just the feature of Fifth uh, Republic politics, parties coming up. But I mean, the fact, I mean, the fact the two parties that were the, the, that contested the second round in 2012, which is only 10 years ago, yeah. combined got about uh, let, let about less than ten percent of the vote. Um, yeah, you know the the socialist candidate Anne Hidalgo, who you know is mayor of Paris. You know we're not talking; they haven't found some. Now there are there are there are reasons around her her sort of crackdown on the gilets jaunes that she was unpopular. But like you know, we are talking about a significant national figure. You know, Jacques Chirac went from mayor of Paris to president of France. You know, it was it was a well, he did he was prime minister in in between. Okay, but 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 you you understand like mayor of Paris was a big it's a big yeah. job she had a significant yeah, it's, it's national a lo- role it's a, launch- it's a launching pad to a national political career. That's like, also funny enough. Less- that is, it was what he did as mayor of Paris that got him in danger of ended up in prison. Yeah. <laughs> so so go that, on, that, that's that's our advice for Anne Hidalgo: get yourself in prison. You might do better than one point seven four percent. This is a part of okay, the one gonna, presidential election. We're going to need, need a new word to replace pasoccupation pasoc- pasoc- at that point. Well, I don't think it is pasoccupation. It is something different. And I think the thing is, like, I think you're both right. You know, Luke is right that, you know, part, French parties come and go. I would say the Socialist Party was a bit more durable than the various parties on the right. It's also yeah. less successful. Um, I think the difference is, is you take Sarkozy, like Sarkozy, no, I think he did two, um, like, reconfigurations of the right-wing parties and then rebranded the right-wing parties. But, like, they, the, it's like the party may change, the, la- the, the, the label may change, but the essence doesn't. Like, they claim, it's like the, it's like the Liberal Democrats claim they're the party of Gladstone. Yes, there's been like a billion different French Conservative parties since De Gaulle fell, but they all claimed the mantle of De Gaulle. And the thing with uh, Macron is there was there was like two ways, uh, and Marsh could have gone after the 2017 election. One is is that he goes surprise. I actually am a former minister of Francois Hollande's government. I actually am a socialist. Fooled you, and it's like okay, and Marsh is the new socialist party, um, freed from some of its historical baggage and maybe some of its internal party democracy. You know, kind of like what Farage did to UKIP. You know, Brexit party is a new UKIP, and that would have been quite in keeping with how parties have kind of worked in France. But he didn't do that. He very consciously presented himself as something beyond that left-right division. Um, he's no, he's had a Conservative Prime Minister for quite some time. I think he's actually on his second Conservative Prime Minister. Um, and he has you know, made very conscious moves to the right. And that's what's really kind of like just completely confused um, French politics, because like... The, the, the French Gaullists, the, the less Republicans, okay, they, they, they didn't get into the <laughs> runoff 
last time. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But is that with your friend Jackson? Well, is that less, less Republicans in his orchestra? Well, no, they're, they're related to Les Dawson. <laughs> um, but um, they, they didn't do too bad. And like they had a ton of scandals that finally did in Phil on. Like, in theory, they should have been able to come back. But Macron basically denied them the space to do so. And so, like, the, the Republicans did incredibly badly as well. Like, you know, they, they, I'm pretty sure they fell underneath the 5% yeah. needed to claim back campaign expenses. So you basically have, you know, I think I've seen some people today compare him to Tony Blair, which I think is a good comparison. You know, you basically got Macron amongst the establishment space, that centrist space, squatting like this giant toad don't no no having like this 28 percent of pro-system voters but the problem is is like his message is the pro-system message distilled and refined to like a hundred percent purity which means you don't have any hooks if you're a system ambivalent voter of the left or the right to vote for him and this is, I think this is a reason to be concerned about the possibility of Le Pen winning, which is Macron's basic message to right-wing people, left-wing people in France who don't want to see a, a, a fascist or a recovering fascist or the daughter of a fascist become president is like it or lump it. You've had me for five years. You're going to get five more years of me, hot and strong. And this is where you look at the polling. It's actually, a lot of people have said, oh, no, Macron made a mistake by delaying his campaign too long. Wrong. You, you, he was that, that kind of st- staying aloof, looking presidential, looking like a statesman. That was working for him. It's when he started campaigning that his numbers started to nosedive i.e. when he announced he was going to try and increase the the state retirement age, because that would just made it clear to everybody. It's like, here we go again. You know, it's going to be more of the same. We are being asked to lend our votes to somebody who won't, you know, who won't meet us halfway. And it's very dangerous. I, I think, yeah, me, but, but, but hang on, bang on. Sorry, can I just, can yeah, I just come yeah, in yeah. there? But this, this, this is, but this is, this is sure. This is surely the, this is surely the bind Macron has got himself into. Demo, demographics combined with, you know, combined with the EU's rules on budget deficits, combined with the whole like mechanism of the euro, mean that one way or the other, the retirement age has got to go up. It, it just, it just has to. Anything else, anything else is long. Re- is unsustainable, not just in the long run, but in actually quite, you know, within the next decade or so, it's going to become unsustainable. It's, I mean, if, if France, not just go all Brexit, but if France, if France still had the franc and could set its own monetary policy, then maybe, you know, Macron could do what, could do what you're saying, Will, and meet them in the middle. But the... The way the Euro straitjackets fiscal and monetary policy, Macron doesn't. Re- Macron doesn't really have 
unless he can find like some magic formula to unlock like you know sort of seven eight percent annual economic growth what choice does he have well i would say before we bring simon not to go to, to go too much into this detour like one i think okay may, maybe he is forced to do this because of the US trade jacket but like i don't think anybody in france and i don't believe that he feels he's in a straight jacket he this is like the type of policy he believes in he wants to liberalize france he wants to make france a leaner more productive country you know this is somebody you know like willingly putting on the straight jacket and asking for it to be tight and harder and secondly I know. I've, no, I personally would just tell the tell the, the European Commission to you know to go hang. You know, you know what they're going to do? Kick France out of the European Union. But equally, if you don't want to do that, you, you have to wait for the crisis. You can't preempt an entitlements crisis. You have to actually see it. You no, know, see the whites in its eyes, so you can actually go to people. Look, we're in a financial crisis. Things need to be cut. I'm sorry, tough decisions need to be made. Um, but the, the human, the human cost, the human cost of that is massive, and it's not the Euro, It's not the, with all due respect, it's not the European Commission you're telling to go hang. It's the Germans. You can tell the, you can tell the European Commission to go hang. You can't tell the Germans to but, go but, hang. No, but, but also, because like, it's, it's sorry, it's their money that's underpinning the whole project, but not for France. Like France, it, France is in Greece. France and that contributor to e, EU funds. The other thing I'd say is, is that I this has always been my big, big theme. Uh, this my my big like meta about French politics. I would just like to see a French um, politician just like run on the on the on the message that France is awesome because like France has good productivity, much better than ours. Most happiness surveys show that people are fairly happy in their own lives. Um, its economy is large. Um, its population growth is, is quite robust by, you know, by European standards. Like, France kind of works. And yet everybody's, everybody in France, in French politics, is just such a Debbie Downer. Like, where is Francis Reagan? Not in terms of doing systematic change, but just going, no, France, you're awesome. Let's celebrate how French we are and how awesome we are. Because, like, I think, I think that would resonate. Like, I know, I like, I know, like, miserableism is contagious. If your elite politicians are saying, "Oh, woe is us, nothing is working. Now is the time of our malaise." Ordinary people will pick up on that. But I think most people have had interactions with French people. No, they are actually quite proud of their society and its culture and its contribution to the world. So why doesn't somebody try and run on that rather than all this doom laden uh, guff? Uh, Simon? Well, I mean, to answer your to answer your question in a way that no one no one on this podcast is going to enjoy, from li- having listened to her some of her, her to her sort of the um, want a better term victory speech last night, I think the closest we're getting to that is someone like Marine Le Pen, who you know was at least who was sort of going you know we need to you know we're sort of talking about you know French Republican values and you know 
but mostly to be mean to Muslims because that's what she wants to do. But like, that's a concern. And that would be my concern is that actually she, you know, it's not as full throated as, as you're going for. And I, I think there's a lot of logic in what you're saying. I mean, you know, it worked. It worked for Boris Johnson. Let's be honest with ourselves. But she's still um, quite doom laden. Like she's more like Trump, which is like France. I mean, what's her slogan? Give give the French their country back. Like mm. she, she's still negative. Like she's like France used to be a, a great country. This is where Boris Johnson's brilliant. This is where, unlike uh, unlike Donald Trump and unlike the National Front. Um, Brexit got 52% of the vote, even with a very tough campaign, rather than being you know, way down at 45, 46%, um, as Trump and Le Pen were. Like Trump was in, in 2016. And like I, I, I do still believe that 45, 46 is probably the, the most Le Pen can hope for, is because actually. Brexit, the Brexit campaign, the Vote Leave campaign, did very clearly communicate that it was comfortable with Britain as it is. Like they weren't doing aggressive um, or even um, uh, subtextual attacks on uh, migrants. They, they, they. they oh made... come on! For... No, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, 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 that's, sorry. That's true. That's true. Of vote leave. It's not true. Of... Yeah, but like, I, yeah, but my our... point, my point has always been: if you had Farage heading up the Brexit campaign, it wouldn't have passed forty percent. Yeah, but for no, this, I... for this reason, and like Johnson is happy with Britain. He does boost Britain. He's not harking back to a golden pass. He no, like Tony Blair, like David Cameron. Boris Johnson, even though he's ended up in a very different place of politics because of the, his decisions the past six years, he is somebody who believes Britain's best days are ahead of it, which I don't think any of the French politicians do are the other lead, leading candidates. Yeah, no, no, that, that's fair. But I think the one who will, who if they choose to, the one I can see doing it. I mean, yeah. Macron, Macron, I think the Ma Macron thing, I think Macron wins in in the second round for because i think in the end enough Mélenchon voters will probably take his don't give a vote to le pen as well we'll probably have to vote for macron then um you know and i'm not saying like that Mélenchon, you know can basically go but you know i, I was pleased that he did come out and he wasn't he was unequivocal in terms of you know you don't vote for le pen even if he didn't endorse macron as much as but and you know, people make their own decisions, but I think in the end, Mélenchon voters um, will, 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 you know, in the word, as Polly Toynbee used to say, at the end, dog ends of dog days, of, end days of new labour. You know, everyone will put on their nose pegs and and get on with it. But the thing that worries me is that um, if if Marine Le Pen is sixty, she's not much over that. I haven't got no, her. No, she's she's, oh. she's fifty three. Wow. Okay. I mean, well, bigotry. Bigotry does age you a bit then. Um, but, like, 58, she can absolutely run again in 2027. And if we get, an, if you know, because the more times you basically have to go to voters who want change, who are on the, le on the left, they want, you know, there's a sort of gilet jaune kind of mentality and people who want, you know, 
to, they want to kind of maintain the social structure and all of this other stuff. I mean, whether or not it's financially, you know, responsible or even possible is is not politically the point right now. If 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 they basically lend their votes to Emmanuel Macron yet again, and Emmanuel Macron lets them down yet again, in the end. They're going to vote for Le Pen, and as you say, if Le Pen is won't be, it will be fifty-eight. You know, for the next presidential election, unless something remarkable happens to a party called some, something like I can't believe it's the French Socialists, then I think she probably goes into the next presidential election as the favourite to win it. I mean, she won't even be, she won't even be old enough to be married to Macron. Hey, um, hey. It is amazing that no one talks more about how creepy that relationship is. It's like, incredibly that, creepy. That it's is, incredibly creepy. We, we should explain. Uh, Macron's wife is like 20 years older than him. And, was, and his former school teacher. And his former school teacher. Like, it is incredibly creepy. Um, on Marine Le Pen, I agree. Um, I think if she... It, I, I, Apparently, there are term limits for the French presidency, so Macron will not stand in the next election. Um, now, the, the, the complicating factor is that Le Pen um, did promise not to restand, that this will be her last campaign. I think she'll be able to get out of that, though, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, well, I've, I think if she has a good two weeks, um, and they get past 45%. So I think with the polls, I think expectations are now like, if, if she was to get 42%, which would have been a very good result for the, for the National Front, uh, national Rally, you know, three months ago, when it looked like they may not even be the largest far-right party, um, you know, I, I, think, I think she'd be in trouble. But I think if she can have a good two weeks, and if she can get over 45%, she can probably unpick it. One, because I think she has shown herself to be quite an astute politician in a way I don't think has actually been true beforehand. So, for example, she zoned in off cost of living um, quite quite a while ago. I think, like, apparently from some of the stuff I've read, she's been campaigning on it since, like, September, October. She also used that kind of navigate the bear trap of her past support for Putin that really hurt uh, the Republicans and, Ze and Ze Zeminov. Um, you know, basically saying I oppose the Russian sanctions, not because I, I support the, the invasion of Ukraine, but because, you know, it's going to hurt French living standards. Um, but also her niece, uh, Marianne Mashlaw, which I probably really butchered that. Marion um, has had a really bad campaign. She, um, your intelligence, Wolfgang Munchell's uh, think tank, um, has like hyped her up as potentially the kind of Le Pen that unites the French right. Um, uh, you know, much more socially conservative than Marine Le Pen, more links with Gaullists. Um, and she just kind of made a hash of it, uh, ended up supporting Zeminor. Um, and obviously he did not do well. Her agonizing over it, over it did not make her look good either. So I, I think there's probably a chance that she can get out of that 
that pledge and rerun, and then if she reruns, she would be like the biggest name in French politics because where does the next candidate come from? You know, you no longer have the um, powerful prime ministers that, that, that can be used as a stage and post for everyone else at the presidency because you no longer have cohabitation. Um, yeah. Um, there was a lot. There was a lovely little thing on that um, in the most one of the most recent episodes from our correspondent, which is that Emmanuel Macron is the first president in the history of the French Republic, the Fifth Republic, to go into an election as president as a as a president seeking re-election, and also with all the levers of power, because all of them have basically had the kind of all the ones that have been so Jacques Chirac, Holland, no, Holland did, Holland and yeah, Sarkozy did. did. Holland and Sarkozy did because they yeah. changed they changed the rules of of French elections in two thousand or it, it took effect in two thousand and two. So um, it used to be the French parliamentary term was slightly shorter than the French presidential term. One was five, one was seven, which is why you had basically the parliament was elected midterm, which is why you got. Midway through a French president's term, you would often get somebody else coming in, so Jospin Chirac becoming prime minister. But no, no, the, the, so, no, that's not that's not happened since they made the change. I mean, okay, that, I mean maybe that, I'm misremembering. That, 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 that is a that is a that is a good question. Ashley, do you think Macron will still like dominate the National Assembly even if he wins re-election? Oh, do, do they mean the upper house? I think um, it, maybe it was all. I can't remember. Sorry, it, it might a, it was, be. They might mean the upper house. They might mean the upper the house. Senate. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, but co- co- formal cohabitation hasn't happened in ages. Yeah, but I mean, I just not to sound not to sound like the euro crank that I am, but I'm going to sound like you're a not euro. a euro crank. You're a British crank, Luke. That crown, that crown symbol is right there on your forehead. Yeah, the pro, the pro, the problem, the problem is though, like ever since, ever since Sarkozy, or ever since two thousand and eight, like French presidents have been writing checks that they can't cash, that they that they simply cannot cash due to the due to the due to the due to the stru- due to the structure of the euro due to the biases of the European Central Bank and due to the due to basically the Germans completely rejecting the idea of any kind of debt neutralization. And it shouldn't be surprising that that, that, that breeds cynicism and discontent. I do like how you you you, you speak as if, as if if France was say you were a French person and France wasn't in the European Union that you wouldn't be saying the same thing and calling on the, the independent French central bank to impose those same limitations? No, I wouldn't. You would. You hate spending money. <laughs> but the but the but the point is you can't you can't go into elections saying I'm gonna I'm gonna achieve all this fundamental reform and stru- restructuring of the the social model, which is all going to cost a fortune, and then say, "Oh, I actually can't. I actually can't run a uh, 
I actually can't run debt greater than 3% of GDP or the Germans are going to sick the Troika on me. And, and, be, and beyond an evolution, the Germans have tried. Well, no, to, to be fair, like the whole, the whole, the whole you, Greece, Greece was, Greece is only ever, was only ever a test run for what the Germans wanted to do to the Italians and the French. But, but uh, that's true to a certain extent. I mean, I think they would fail um, if they tried, um, which is why I think the country most likely to leave uh, the Euro is Germany or Netherlands. Um, if, if, if they just get sick of one of the other countries' nonsense. Um, but the Macron, I think, I think to be fair, like, I think you're seeing Macron as, as more spend, uh, as a bigger spender than he is. Like, Macron has always been a bad, like, again, he's very Blairite, like, you know, revitalize France, liberalization, you know, yada, yada, yada. He's, he's, he, again, he, he, he's a very odd figure. To kind and of- then, then when, then when he, then when he realized, then when he realised you wouldn't have the money to cushion the social impact of that, he backed away from it. Well, no, he backed away from it because the whole country was burning due to a bunch of riots. Exactly. You want me to get consent in a democracy? <laughs> Pardon? I would just call the, I would just call the Germans bluff. Well, actually, this is one thing we should say. Um... In retrospect, we shouldn't have been surprised that National Rally is doing better than it was back in 2017. Because one of the big shifts in policy Le Pen has made is abandon leaving the euro. Now, there's a lot of stuff in her po- policy platform that is uh, Frexit by stealth. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, and you know, eight. What you might call, what Boris Johnson might have called, an EU sovereignty bill, where you know you uh, assert the supremacy of French law over EU law. There's stuff about increasing uh, border checks on goods crossing yeah, the France. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of non-tariff barriers. Yeah, basically. But the key thing is, it's the reason why the euro is so important, and the reason why, say, say Britain had joined the euro, we'd either have blown the euro up. Or we would still be in the European Union. Because the thing is, the minute you're in the Euro, unless you are one of those countries, such as the Netherlands, such as the Germans, that have not just low government debt and deficit, but like low personal debt um, um, and like no positive trade surpluses, that sort of thing. What the Euro does is it artificially inflates the value of your currency. Which you know has all the negative uh, issues that uh, Luke has has been outlining. It is absolutely fantastic if you're a, a pensioner or a saver. And and the reason why Euro no leaving Euro is so difficult, probably more difficult. No, it is more difficult than leaving the EU itself, is because you know we can all have very interesting academic discussions about whether Britain is better. <laughs> having left the European Union or not, if you leave the euro and you're a saver, you will immediately see the value of your savings be reduced. Um, you might Massively. Massively. massively well. You might also have the issue that some of your debts are still denominated in euros 
um, because they, they, no, there weren't convertibility clauses in Surface. So Euro makes leaving the European Union, European structure, immensely painful um, to ordinary people in a way that Brexit hasn't been, and immediately painful. And and it's it it almost certainly depressed the national uh, that what was then the National Front's vote in 2017. I mean, I do think it's interesting that the 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 demographic Macron does best in is the over 60s, where he beat he basically beats um, Le Pen hollow. Uh, Mélenchon Mélenchon actually beats Le Pen among younger among younger voters, and she's the middle. Oh, yeah, and she wins in the middle. Um, Any final thoughts, Simon, on the French elections? Well, actually, <laughs> actually, if I could just say, if I could just say oh, yes. one more, if I could just say one more thing before um, before Simon comes in. What? <laughs> I mean, surely, like, surely, like the problem, the problem going, the problem going forward is. Um, like, yeah. If the if the if if the, the if there's just like this one amorphous center party that that is totally dominated by Emmanuel Macron, even to the extent that it's you know he uses his initials, you know, if he you, you just in, know Tony Blair was like, oh, I should have thought of that. Yeah, if he's term limited, he could have I mean, called it True Britain as well. It would have worked yeah, really yeah. well. <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> No, advanced Britain, because you know people actually call him Anthony. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's then also like, you could uh, you could uh, almost nope. translate so much as well. It's just like what I mean. What is the future of like centrism in France if it's not Emmanuel Macron? I've got it. I've got it. Go it's on. advanced Christian liberal Britain. God, oh, Anthony! Really wow! Wow! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh the, my the, God! The, how how sad is it that I know? How sad is it that we know Tony Blair's full uh, mate? I had to Google it just to make sure. Anthony, yeah. Anthony Charles Linton Blair. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, no. I mean, the the answer is is it'll be it'll be um Emmanuel Cameron. Uh, who comes from someplace far away? Yes, that'll do. Um, <laughs> I, I like the way you rub things. I, I mean, I think the answer you would hope would be it will be whoever he picks as his prime minister two years before the, 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 the presidential yeah. election, and he will. Step away. Like I say this, and like, no, Macron will not do this. But he will, you know, let the prime minister be a bigger force, a more public, more the public face of his government for the last two years to allow them to run as the incumbent with a high profile. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the possibility is is that the Gaullists and the socialists will return to prominence when Macron is not there. Like, that feels unlikely, given how badly they did. Like It, it was apocalyptic, you know. This was Lib Dem 2013 levels of success for the socialists in particular. I mean, it's not, it's not even that good, let's be honest, you know. 
like and like there is i mean this is the thing like what happened to the republicans is absolutely shocking given how oh, it's, it, it's shocking and it isn't because like this i think this has been kind of see, been coming for a while but like the socialists as well like them not getting any bounce back from how uh, benoit did um uh, back in 2017 given the fact that Macron has clearly shared his kind of association with the Socialist Party in quite a big way, um, yeah, it's it's really bizarre. The things I would just say is, one, I think the, if the French had the American system, and even ours, if they could actually have coherent parties... Because this is the thing, like the whole system is designed around forcing the French to have coherent parties, even if, even though they don't want to. So it's the old um, De Gaulle quote, isn't it? How do you govern a country with over a thousand varieties of cheese? We um, have more variants of cheese in the UK now, which actually may explain why we're completely ungovernable. <laughs> yes, there you go. But um, <laughs> no, that, that, that's not that's not even the best De Gaulle quote about politics. And actually, this this is quite um, apposite. It's the in my in my in my day in my day, greengrocers used to vote for solicitors, and now the solicitors are voting for the greengrocers. <laughs> um, um, I, I was saying this on Twitter today. I I believed BBC should fund movies, you know, like a slate of mid tier or low budget films, and it should and it should represent a range of political opinions. You know, have some right wing films, have some left wing films, have some about how glorious history have some about our uh, bad bad present but like my dream i think the dream film i think you could pull so what you're so what you're saying well there's a slightly slight he's like play for today with a bit more editorial about i am exactly saying like play for today um but one of the things i think you could do a great film of um and you could get canal plus in as a as a, a as co-producers is an adaptation of Allies at War. Do you remember that documentary? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The De Gaulle, Roosevelt, Churchill, psychodrama. Honestly, yeah. like, I, I, there, there is a DVD of it that's really expensive to buy. And every now and again, when I'm drinking late at night, I, like, ho- hover my finger over buying this so I can rewatch it. Um <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the Eden quote. I have, I have more, tr- I have more trouble with you than all the governments, than all the other governments in exile combined. I don't doubt it. France is a great power. <laughs> but well, the I thing think is, I like, love the goal, and like, this is unexpected. <laughs> but the, there's, I mean, there's, oh, oh, Simon, it's so good. Like, there's that, that like Roosevelt, like, the Americans force, uh, uh, the goal, and. Um, Oh, who's the, who's the other one? Jerome. Jerome. Um, yeah, um, uh, to have a shotgun uh, uh, ma- uh, a marriage to kind of unite the free French with what's left of France in, in the colonies. And, um, and uh, Jerome is kind of regaling everybody with the story of... Um, of um, you know how, how he escapes. Sca- oh, you know you tell the story because you know this more in detail. Because you, you, I, <laughs> I found it funny, and I didn't realize the punchline. Yeah, well, so okay, so they're at dinner, and Jerome, you know, he, he actually, you know, for a, for a man in his mid sixties, it is a very impressive escape attempt. You know, he basically basically does the classic thing of making a rope out of the blankets and 
jumping into the moat and the castle he's being held in and, you know, walking to the uh, main road and hit, basically hitchhiking his way back to uh, um, back into Vichy, France. Um, but de Gaulle just sits there impassively and lets him tell the whole story and then goes, General, why don't you tell us how you were captured in the first place? <laughs> and the, the, the story of how he was captured was, Okay, Giraud starts off as commander of the 7th Army in 1940 and is transferred uh, midway through the campaign to command the 9th Army. And so he's, he's, flying, he's flying to his new command post and nobody's thought to radio that the airfield he's supposed to be flying into has already been captured by the Germans. So he literally lands in the middle of a German panzer of a German Panzer Division that is using this airfield to refuel their tanks. Exceptional. Well done, everyone. <laughs> so my, so my, after that, so, my, so basically, like, it's such a good documentary series, um, but basically, you can make a really good uh, uh, no, Anglo-French production where the ghoul looks a hero because, my God, that man is. Like, the whole stuff with him and Eisenhower is, so basically, the Americans. So this is now Will and Luke tell Simon about the goal. Yeah, you were huge the goal fanboy. Well, I think I think you are as well. So, I mean, who wouldn't be? Charles he so so far he sounds fun. I, I I mean I'm not sure he necessarily the ideal statesman, but he certainly sounds like a fun person to spend a weekend with. So the goal. Um, so, like the Americans, what basically the Americans want to do to France, what they do to Iraq in two thousand and three? Yeah, or they, or basically treat it like Germany, treat it as occupied territory. Yeah, so I like, know set up military government, set up have Americans in control, and the free French are basically the interpreters for American soldiers. And like the Gaulle kicks up the most almighty stink about this, and he's kicking and throwing. Um, at one point, he's refusing to deliver a, a broadcast on uh, on D Day. Now, all this also, and so eventually, he quote unquote relents. He gets into he gets into France, just starts telling the free French to set up civilian government and ignore the <laughs> Americans. And like Roosevelt is screaming down the phone at Eisenhower, and Eisenhower's like, "What do you want me to do? <laughs> Open fire on the." Yeah, but also, but also, like Eisen. But I mean, in, in fairness, Eisenhower thinks Roosevelt is dead wrong, and yes. so he just deliberately cocks a death. Basically, no, you know, this is really like Eisenhower actually comes out of 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 that documentary quite well because basically Eisenhower, I think he meets Jura at one point and thinks Jura's a complete dud. He meets yeah. De Gaulle and thinks he's quite smart. Cause like De Gaulle was like. A really good up and coming like military theorist. Well, no, he's re- well. Okay, in my opinion, his reputation far exceeds his ability as a military commander. Well, no, I, I don't say commander because, like, yeah, he's unproven there as a yeah. theorist, as somebody who could talk war. Yeah, yeah. He, but again, he, he talks. He talks a good. Like I've read, I've read, I've read Edge of the Sword, which was like his main like contribution and you can tell it's somebody you can tell it's somebody that spent most of world war one in captivity mm. because he like t- he totally ignores all the 
He totally ignores like all the mechanical and logistical problems of armored warfare. Actually, you, you know what? Um, Presaging some of the difficulties the Russians are having, actually. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is but this is by okay, so, so my my point is that you can do a really fun movie where the ghoul is a hero. We are being a bit perfidious because you know. Yeah, but actually, who would you get to play the ghoul? Because the ghoul. Rather like Richard Nixon, nobody looks like Charles de Gaulle. Apparently, there's a film on Amazon Prime that the French made um, in 2020, and uh, so I'm going to need to watch that. I don't know. Like, it has to be a Frenchman. Like, if 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 the French would allow for colorblind casting, you just get Patrick, uh, and he hadn't put on weight since he was a player. You just get Patrick Vieira. Like, he's the guy who has that kind of stature and sneer that the Gaulle has. Yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a bad call. That wouldn't be a bad call actually. And he's even got that like massive wedge of a nose. Yes, yes. I, think, I think Crystal Palace fans would be a bit annoyed as he's he's currently basically been their best oh, yeah. manager in about oh, yeah. twenty five years. We've spent we've spent the past forty minutes talking about the rise of the French far right, and the thing we're worried about is whether Crystal Palace fans <laughs> would be annoyed about the casting of a black goal. <laughs> Talk, talk, talking about talking about. Oh, no, 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 let, me, let me just finish. How, how do you remember me thinking? What's this got to do with Brexit? Because you know you have the famous scene with Churchill and the Gaul to end it. Oh, which what? Is, we'll always we'll always look to the open ocean. We'll always look. To, I think he says open sea. Yeah, like if, if if Britain has to choose between Europe and the open sea, we'll always choose the open sea. But talking about things, and that's what you—that's what you end the movie on. Anyway, sorry, I did actually have a point to make about the French elections. Go on, then, very quickly. Very quickly, so, two points. So, first of all, if if as I say, like if France had the system we have or the Americans have, the National Front probably would have formed a government by this point. The French really are relying on the system the Gaulle created for them. And, and what makes it brilliant, you remember, like, this is a system that was deliberately designed to thwart anti-system parties because of the threat the French communists posed. And the key thing is, it's not as if, you know, single transferable vote, alternative vote, hadn't been invented in the 1960s. The key thing about it is, is you have this two-round system. So if somehow an anti-system party breaks into the top two, people have to really think hard about it and really want that anti-system candidate to win for them to win. They can't sneak through because, you know, Mechelon voters decided not to put Macron as one of their continuing preferences or, you know, or yada, yada, yada. But, you know, there's two weeks where it's the system candidate versus the anti-system candidate and people really have to want the anti-system candidate to win. Um, and I think, you know, that will probably what dooms Le Pen. I am worried that if people are being complacent and think Macron's got us in the bag, that it will continue to be a refer referendum on Macron rather than a referendum on Le Pen, which is what makes it more likely that Le Pen will win. Um, um, what was my second point going to be? Nope, that, that was my point. So, yeah, so, oh, you yeah, know, my second point is going to be, look, you know, look at it. Look, look, can you see it? 
de Gaulle, what, 30 years, 40 years after he died, still saving France. What a man. Yeah. But for yeah. one man to save a country once is, is, is impressive. To save it twice is really impressive. Just keep keep saving it after his from death. Can I, can I just say one more de Gaulle story? Go on. So uh, this is not him personally. Um, oh, there's so many personal de Gaulle stories. But um, um, obviously de Gaulle comes to power due to the riots in Algiers by the French settlers. And there's a famous scene where like, the, the leader of the French Algerians, the, the Algerian settlers, is delivering a a statement from like a balcony, like from a, a, a government yeah, no, balcony. He, wasn't, he was the military commander. You're military, talking about Raoul Saleh. That's right. And, and like there is like a Gaullist behind him that shoves their fingers as if uh, to mime a gun between the shoulder blades to get him to shout out Vila France, Vila de Gaulle as part of, you know, people, people get this. France had a legit revolution in 1958 to bring de Gaulle to power. Constitutional government in France broke down in 1958 and they had to call a mulligan. <laughs> anyway, by the way, by the, by the way, I, by the way, if we're talking about um, fifty-eight, there's a great, there's a great answer. So, De Gaulle, De Gaulle's, De Gaulle's doing a press conference, and one of the journalists asked him, you know, Monsieur, uh, you know, General De Gaulle, are you planning to set up as a dictator? And De Gaulle looks at him and goes. I'm nearly seventy years. I'm nearly seventy years old. I haven't got enough time left to set up as a dictator. Brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> one more thing. So we, we don't need to talk about this in detail. I th- I, I remember my other point. I think the other thing, which is a bit grim, and we will return to war in Ukraine after we just talked about British politics for a bit. This is the second sign that for all the kind of emotional outpouring and what the economists called the emotional spasm of sympathy towards Ukraine, that actually um, there isn't much of a penalty in in European um, electorates for being seen as pro-Putin, that the kind of unity, the revulsion towards Russia hasn't endured, even though we've actually seen, you know, atrocities I think go beyond what I think no they don't go beyond the worst case scenario but we'll talk about that um, at the end of the podcast because obviously Le Pen is a is a pro-Putin candidate funded through Russian banks in 2017 and in this election is funded through Hungarian banks which brings on to Viktor Orban, um, who, despite being very openly pro-Putin, pro even pro-the-Russian invasion, secured um, what has to be called a thumping re-election. Yeah, um, but it's 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 not a, it's not a democratic election. It's not a free it's not a free and fair election. No, but it is like he did even factoring in the gerrymandered nature of the. 
um, of the constituency seats, he, he managed to secure over 50% on the list vote as well. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, that that's not that's not that's not really my issue. When when you're when your opponent when your opponents can't get on television, yes, when you're when you know when party workers for the opposition are being routinely threatened, routinely threatened and actually dismissed from their jobs for handing out leaflets. You can't treat that like... There's a difference between saying, like, in the American... Like, with an American gerrymandering, yeah, those elections aren't completely fair, but they are still free. I, I just I just don't... Th- I just don't think you can say the election that took place in Hungary was in any way valid. And the fact that Hungary is still a member of the European Union just boggles me because there is no way that what's going on in Hungary is consistent should be consistent with the EU membership if the EU actually believes in the values it says it believes in. Oh no, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because the funding yeah. Albon gets from the European Union is how he pays for all this stuff. Yeah. He would he would not be able to be this um, um, vindictive and uh, domineering if there wasn't this, this big lot of money yeah. being flowed into his lap. But, but, but I think it's certainly clear to say, as much as you can tell in Hungary, he did not suffer from his association with Putin. Le Pen has clearly not suffered from her association I mean, with Putin. Fairness, Le Pen did repudiate Putin. Uh, supposing the sanctions... Uh, well, yeah. Um, what do you what do you what do you think, Sam? And I, I, I think it's I think there is a real worry. I think I think there was a sense that you know people would look at people across Europe would look at what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on particularly in places like Mariupol, and would 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 want to turn against those people. But you know, Marine Le Pen has the best chance she's ever had to president of France, Victor Orban. Even if he's not been, even if that isn't a free and fair election, well, I don't think it is. Um, and yeah, the EU should be sanctioning them much more than they are. But it's obviously harder. It's much easier to keep someone out of a of a, of a club than it is to throw them out, which is kind of where the EU's stuck at the moment. I mean, the, the hope will be is that the fact that he's he has clearly broken his relationship with Poland, which the relationship with Poland never really made much sense um, because of them being so diametrically opposed on the issue of Russia. Um, if if Poland and the EU can come to some sort of, of arrangement, that, that might free the um, EU's hand to deal with Hungary because you won't have Poland vetoing any Article 7 measures taken against Hungary, but Mm. That's a that's a big if, and that may be swapping one problem for another in five, ten years' time. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we will move on, and we'll move on to Rishi Sunak. So, Simon, how, yes. how, how, how what, on the scale of one to ten, how big is the ouchie of a week? Our in no way childish, childish and petulant Chancellor has endured these these past seven days. Well, so this is the thing. It's not. It's like a seven out of ten, really, because like it's. It, it, this was one of the things that's really interesting about. So he, 
He has. He is by far the richest MP in Parliament. By some measures, he's the richest person ever to serve as a member of Parliament. Although that's probably you know not true, because there were some in the 18th century that were basically you know the East India Company and made in, in, in he's the richest. Of- he's the richest nominally. So if you if you don't account for inflation, he's the richest. But yeah, I mean, I th- I think even Lord. So- I mean, he was an MP, but like Lord Salisbury may have been richer as well. Yeah. So, well, I mean, they- if you own. Hatfield House, you're probably quite well off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we are talking about someone with a lot. No, yeah, we are talking to someone with a lot of money, part, mostly through his wife, whose father own is the founder and owner of Infosys, which is a massive tech conglomerate. Um, his wife, um, Agatha Murthy, is not. She's an Indian citizen. She doesn't have a British passport, um, which. They're trying to spin, and and she is not, and she has for a number of years been non-domiciled for tax purposes outside of the UK. Um, now, non-dom tax um, arrangements um, back in the halcyon days of like 2015, when you know the, that the, when we didn't have when we weren't having a global apocalypse a week, um, was a ser- was a major, you know, bone of contention. Um, the Ed Miliband Labour Party said they were going to basically ban them. I, you know, can't remember for the life of me now how poss- how plausible that was. But, you know, there was a sense that the idea that being not non-domiciled outside the UK whilst living in the UK for tax purposes was something that, you know, impressed a lot of voters' buttons. Um particularly in sort of obviously fallout from the financial crisis and the expenses crisis. Um, And now we find that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who I think it's always worth saying, to an even greater extent than normal MPs, is is paid for by the taxpayer because, you know, his house, although he appears to have moved out of that this week in the last couple of days, which is... Well, we'll get get back to that in a second. Um has is paid for by you know you and i at 11 downing street not, not is, just is one house two, two house he has a he has a grace and favor mansion as well oh he gets to share is it is it chevening no 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 of... they the, the chancellor has their own one what, what's it called luke i i can't remember but yeah the, the well, chancellor, I mean, chancellor has their own one as well I, I Dornywood. Mean, that's the one Dornywood. i mean and i mean the question of whether voters care that much is moot i think um i think to be honest a lot of it is a lot of this is baked in because you know tories are kind of expected to be rich and yes rishi sunak is a whole level of rich more rich than even david cameron who was you know very rich and again married to a woman who was even richer um uh, but and people kind of I think they kind of, you know, uh, basic in the in to, to you know quote quote um, you know st- you know Stalin to misquote Stalin, you know a million pounds here a, a million pounds is more like a statistic, you know once once you're dealing in millions, most people don't have a think about that because most people don't think you don't have never seen a million pounds, you know that's a vast sum of money, so you know above that slightly becomes rather um, immaterial. Um, but the question of whether he, you know, there's there's questions over basically whether he's his family have been paying the amount of tax that would be expected. So you get lots of very boring arguments about how people pay tax. And 
But the thing I think that's... And then, then there was the revelation that he's held on to a green card, which, although not legally, is culturally the kind of expected... Is the thing you get as a, as a kind of step to becoming an American citizen. Uh, and he's held on to one for several years, which also gives him certain tax advantages, which I don't really understand. Oh, no, it's, it's the reverse. It's the reverse. It, it, it's it's a negative for tax because you have to pay US tax on your income. Oh, that's if anything, that's weirdly. I don't know. Is it, I'm not sure if it's worse or better because basically you're saying he's basically prepping himself to go and become a. Yes, tech it's worse. That, that's why it's worse. Yeah. Go and become a tech bro in Silicon Valley and drink Huel all the time. Um, but, and I think the reason that this is like, it's this it, a, a skilled politician who'd been doing this for twenty years would have found I think would have found a way of of sort of talking about this. I mean, there is a line you can do of like you know what having allowing people to come over here, be successful, and be non domiciled. You know the wealth creators line. I mean, it's bollocks, but you know I feel like George Osborne or someone would have used that. Would have kind of well, been actually, able to talk about that. Ed, Ball, Ed Balls, of all people, did use that line. So. Well, this is what, you know, exactly. It's it, This is the thing. Um, so, you know, a politician who's able to do this stuff, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't agree with it more because Ed Balls said it, but, you know, it is. it would have been possible to talk about this kind of stuff and say, look, yes, my wife is, inher- is, is a very successful businesswoman who's the daughter of a very, even more successful businesswoman. You know, she's over here and she's, you know, paying income on her, you know, but she's coming over here and she's making this country. But, you know, that, there's a way. But no, instead of that, he, he kind of whinged that people were, you know, being mean about his wife, which, you know, literally, you know, being a family, close family member and, you know, wife is pretty close, is in the ministerial code. And it's it's what is clear is that you know he's only been an MP for six, just nearly seven years, and he he's only been in the cabinet since twenty nineteen. When did he join as chief sec? Yeah, he was. He was yeah. I think he was one of the guys who. No, I think it was it two thousand nineteen or two thousand eighteen. I think he may have joined. He may have joined when Steve Barclay became Brexit minister. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think I think he was made. He was brought into the cabinet by May. Okay, so probably twenty eighteen. But you know, yeah. he's been, he, and then for you know, complicate because of Sajid Javid's resignation, you know, he was pole vaulted into eleven Downing Street's chance. Now, obviously, being chanced during the pandemic, which is basically what he was doing, was hard. It was playing politics on on one level. It was playing politics on incredibly difficult level because you were having to do stuff that no government had ever done. But on the other level of it, it was playing politics on relatively easy because he was able to stand up in Downing Street. Uh, he go, I am Matt, the, the the man who solves for this crisis, and then he and then at the same time basically give everyone free money. And now he's having to do what he always claims he wants to do, of you know. Um, you know, sort of, you know, cut and cut and cut and be Mr. Fiscal. But the reality is that makes you a lot less popular. And he's just not handling it very, you know, the spring statement broadly, you know, exploded on the landing, on the launch pad. And since then, there's clearly people briefing against him, but there's clearly a lot to brief against. You know, there's clearly a lot to brief against. This is, 
you know, he's 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 proving himself to be pretty inept MP. And I think a lot of people who might have considered voting um, for Rishi Sunak in any upcoming leadership election we might have over the next year or so are probably quietly looking around for any other lifeboat. Um. I think I think um, there's just a f- few things about the actual details of the issue that he's got himself into. So th- the reason his wife wants to maintain non-domicile status, and you know this this I think has been missed by some people reporting on a statement she made um, back uh, on Friday, has retained non-domicile status. No, she has not given it up. Is because. She has a dad who is old and rich. And if you have non-domicile status and you come into a huge inheritance, you don't have to pay inheritance tax. Um, um, so like and like, so this is where this is why it's such a difficult political scandal for a Sunak to navigate. Because, like, there is a red line here. There is a non-negotiable. His wife is not going to change her tax status at the cost of, I think, I've seen estimates of two hundred million pounds. So Rishi gets to keep playing politics, um, and I, and I don't think Labour has fully got that across. I don't think the media's fully got that across. I saw a lot of people being very impressed with her statement that she's going to voluntarily pay the 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 quote unquote full tax um on her income um for moving forward backdated to the previous tax year as well. But that's not the issue. She's non-domiciled because of the inheritance that they think is coming due at any point Whenever, you know, obviously it's, it, you can never predict it when you have elderly parents. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah. Let's push him down the stairs. <laughs> um, I know I don't have an issue with non-doms living here and paying lesser tax because you're basically recruiting rich people to um, consume stuff in London. Like that's... that's and, the- yeah. And you do have to pay like a fee. I think it's thirty thousand yeah. pounds a year. Yeah, that's the point. It's like you're recruiting rich people. So, like, look, you've earned money in some godforsaken place like India, Montana, France, Germany, basically anywhere that's not London, because London, other than New York, is like the place to be. Why not give us thirty grand? Pay like a, a nominal amount of tax as a percentage, and you get to spend that money that you earn elsewhere here. And that's clearly a good thing for Britain. We are taking money that rich people earn elsewhere and they are spending it here. And but here's the thing, and I think actually, ironically, a telegraph had a good article about this. You have to choose. Like, you can be one of the beautiful people, one of the non-doms, that are kind of on this global party circuit. Or you can be someone... Or a citizen of of nowhere. uh... (laughs) Well, that's originally what... 
she meant i mean the fact that i think everyone went oh the woman from the the woman from the go home vans is talking about citizen nowhere yeah, is no, why she, everyone she was, kind she of she was talking she was talking about people like this she was talking about yeah no no, like no I, I know but the re i'm saying that the reason that the citizen of nowhere line became used as a kind of Theresa May is hitting immigrants is that Theresa May spent her entire time at the yes. Home Office hitting immigrants. But yes, she was talking about non-doms like Rishi Sunak's wife. And and the thing is, it's more profound than that because, look, Rishi Sunak should be made to ask a very simple question. And, I, and this is why I think the US green card is so toxic. Because you only can, you can only like claim non-dom status in the spirit of the law if you don't plan if at some point you plan to move out of the UK um, like that's, that's what I mean. like if, if, if this is like your forever home then you are not meant to claim non-dom status like you won't be done in for it no one will know if you're just pretending but you know what it's meant to be is for people are passing through who have homes elsewhere who this is just you know a stopover so the thing with sunak is sunak needs to answer a question no is this just a stopover for you no do you plan to move out of here the minute you cease to be chancellor prime minister leader of the opposition whatever is in his future and the green card actually clarifies issues because I think it's pretty fucking clear that the answer is no, he does not plan to stay in this, you know, two horse country, this Timpole Hill country. No, he he wants to go where the action is, which is California. Um, and that. And I just well, I, like, I know, like his handling of this has been abysmal, but no, like. You've got your wife, and as, some, as the only one on this podcast who's been married, like me and my ex-wife did not merge our finances as much as most people because we didn't own any property together. But like, what your wife earns is integral to your own personal finances. Yeah. Like, that's the way it works when you're a couple. <laughs> um, so like the idea that it's nothing to do with him and his status that his wife is shirking taxes, um, that his wife has a tax status, that implicitly means, I don't think implicitly means, explicitly means that she is not planning to stay in Britain for the long haul, actually is of profound importance and actually disqualifies him from being chancellor, let alone a chancellor who is currently putting up all our taxes. Yeah, um, well, I mean- I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's more, I think it's more basic, even than that, because in any other government, this would be a resigning matter, but in this particular government, it can't be, because nothing is. Well, no, but exactly, Simon, because Boris Johnson has no moral authority. The whole party gate thing has, you know, what, 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 what's Boris Johnson going to say? Sorry, Rishi. Um, sorry, Rishi, this looks dodgy. I'm going to have to ask you your resignation. Oh, well, really, Prime Minister, I don't think I broke any laws. Can you say the same? 
I think the thing, I think, I mean, the, the, as, as, as I have a great deal of sympathy for people who would like to not live in the UK and would like to live in other countries, as I've made clear on this podcast in the past. But that's one of the multitude of reasons I'm not aiming to become prime minister of this country. And I'm not aiming to, you know, join this country's cabinet is I don't really, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I have no ambition particularly to run this country because, you know, I don't have any particular feelings for yeah, it, frankly. It, it, it's like... It's, it, it's the it's the arrogance of it. It's the it's the, it's the overweening sense of entitlement. And I yes. think the interesting the interesting thing is linking it actually you know linking it a bit to the to the previous topic. In that I think that the if the labor if the labor party play this right, and you know the labor party last played something right in about two thousand and six. So we'll see. Um, yeah, this could be this could be really really damaging because if if you can create the image if you can create a backlash against a sort of sense that you're dealing with a party that doesn't care about your country you know basically is just here for the temper for the temporary time because actually this is one of the interesting things about the Boris Johnson administration is a lot of people think that the next election will be a first re-election for Boris Johnson's rather than a fifth election in a row for the Conservatives, because for very, you know, in terms of the um, the way it looks. But if you can do a kind of like these guys don't care about you, they're just you know here for they're here for a short time, not you know they're here for a good time, not for a long time, kind of vibe. Actually, that that can play against them. Whereas normally um, going for your first re-election really plays in your favour. Um, you know, Rishi Sunak could be doing the government. It could do that thing that kind of expenses weird you know sort of things like it could be in that category because it really it does feel like it's a govern like it's a government that um you know that doesn't isn't interested in ordinary people's lives and isn't and also just isn't on the same planet as ordinary people like i think most people think their mps earn more than they do like they do. you are <laughs> No, no, and they do. No, because as a fact, they do. Is, no, no, but my, I think most people kind of accept that you know the people who are your members of parliament are are, are above average income. They're doing better than you. You know, they're comfortable. But the scale of Sunak's, the scale of the wealth of someone like Rishi Sunak, is vast. And and it's once it's once again. And I hate saying this, and I'm going to have to go have a shower at the end of this. It's worth praising David Cameron here because he never got into, never really got into any of these kind. I mean, yes, people knew he went to Eton, but lots of people who are British Prime Minister went to Eton. There was no sense of, yes, he, I mean, the, to, the Toffs thing never worked. You know, they tried it at Kroonan, which was a complete disaster. John Cameron was able to present himself, although he was a staggeringly wealthy man by the standards of ordinary people in this country, as as a sort of as the guy with the nice car in your school car park. And like the reality is that we are dealing with a much less skilled generation of politicians and Sunak, and this is Sunak's thing, and he's just failed completely to, to pass I, the kind I, of I imagine I, running into him. I think it's more profound than because it's an echo there. I think it's more profound than that actually. And actually, we should add Boris Johnson to that because Boris Johnson is a very wealthy man as well. And like he, like apparently, like the Times, there's a very funny anecdote about 
during the um, two, 2012 London Mayoral race, Johnson was hitting um, was hitting Kevin, Ken Livingston on tax avoidance. I think Livingston had a personal, uh, like a personal company to handle his media appearances. To to uh, uh, and so you paid a more efficient tax rate, and like so, Linton Crosby went. No, we need to kind of check your taxes to make sure you're not doing anything dodgy, and they actually found out that Johnson was paying too much tax, um, because his finances were completely chaotic, and he he had not organised them in an efficient way. And you know, one of the interesting things is Johnson himself had to give up. U.S. citizenship because he was born in New York, um, precisely to avoid um, uh, paying U.S. income tax. Um, the the thing is, I think Cameron Osborne clearly did very well recruiting rich Asian bankers to be the new face of the Tory Party. These are people who hadn't necessarily thought they were going to be successful, no, be politicians. It hadn't crossed their mind, but they'd reached, they'd been very successful in that in their early career. They had reached a point where um, they had more money than they could ever spend in a lifetime. And it's like, you know, I want to do something more meaningful, I want to do something more interesting. And you have Cameron or Osborne or one of their underlings come and say, well, have you met my 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 friends, the Palace of Westminster, becoming an MP, be do interesting work, serve the public, and, you know, worst case scenario, you leave after 10, 15 years and you get even more interesting corporate jobs at a higher hourly rate. And so you you know you have people who have done stuff that I think most rich people in their positions would do, but nobody who was rich who was planning to go into politics would normally do. It's like Savage Javid talking about, had had to reveal that he had himself been a non-dom before entering Parliament, and actually until he was a minister, because you no, know, he was a hedge fund guy, and you know he was splitting his time between Britain and America, um, you know, earning lots of money where, you know, drop in 10, 15% off your tax percentage, uh, 10, 15% off your tax rate, you know, really adds a lot to how much money you earn. Um, you know, David Cameron knew he was going to be a politician from when he left uni so he knew his finances the woman he married everything had to fit into something suitable for a life in politics i don't think a lot of the guys that cameron osborne recruited to kind of diversify the toy party understood what they were getting themselves in for and this is why these issues are cropping up because you know they are so wealthy because how do you get on Cameron Osborne's radar as somebody who will be the diverse face of the Tory party? You're going to have to be a rich banker. No, that's the circles Cameron Osborne moved in. 
So, no, basically the Tory party may have to completely revisit how it recruits ethnic minority candidates, which has been one of their great successes of the past 20 years. Yeah. I do, I do want to go back to one of my things, which is, um, yeah, it's a sensitive subject, you know, what the hell. Um, I, 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 I really think you can't underestimate the possibility he may just quit. Um, I, as somebody who has gone through a divorce and a sep- obviously a separation before that, some of the stuff Sunak is doing at the moment feels like he is battling to save his marriage. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But like, there is an unhinged quality to the way he reacts to stuff about his wife, and particularly the stuff that is being leaked on his behalf about his relationship with his wife. So the preemptive briefing that his wife has moved, wife and, sh- and children have moved out of 11 Downing Street, well, technically 10 Downing Street. Um, the briefing that he, he is constantly, he's still constantly in touch with his wife and he's texting her all the time in between meetings. The, 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 the weirdness around how tetchy he gets when asked questions about his wife. The, the, the weirdness about him demanding that an, a, a real leak inquiry is, is, is organised. The, the briefings that his wife is worried about what this, is, this means for her reputation. Um, it all feels like Sunak is not in control of what is going on at home, which is why he's handling this so badly. Um, and, you know... I, I do not have a stressful a job or as important a job or as public a job as being Chancellor of the Exchequer when I was going through my separation or divorce and I was not in a good uh, position um, or good state when no stuff was going on and I never really dug myself out of the hole that that period created for me. So, yeah, I... Good looks, good luck, Rishi, because yeah, it does not look like he is handling this on a much more profound level than he doesn't know the line to take. I don't know. Am I projecting? Am I wrong? What do you guys think? I don't know. Like, I, I don't I know. Really, I've never been in that situation. And I, well, Sorry. this is it. And don't I don't me. sort of, and I think you, I don't want to kind of make any cast any aspersions on their relationships and we're not we're not inside it um i think there's some i i i think it's you know i you know it may be that but i think more likely is simply the fact that he's a guy who's had life pretty easy right up to this but you know certainly his political life i can't speak for his you know working life you may have found that challenging but like this is a guy who basically, you know, he's been put on an elevator, elevator politically. He got an incredibly, he succeeded William Hague as MP for Richmond, which at the time, I think in 2015, had the largest conservative majority in the country. You know, he got into parliament. He, you know, got a night, got a job in the ministerial job. Then he got a job in the cabinet. He got, you know, almost accidentally made chancellor of the exchequer. He had a, you know, he's not he's clearly a smart guy and everything, but you know, like in terms of popularity, this is the first time he's probably it may be the first time he's ever been widely criticized by people. 
And he may just not be coping with that very well. I think that's as much a chance as anything else. Yeah. Any, any, any... I have one more point to make about this border issue with the toy party. Going back to like this thing of it shows that they are a anywhere party rather than a nowhere party. Sorry, a nowhere party rather than a anywhere party. At some point, cultural conservative people of place, whatever euphemism you want to call people who aren't happy with like liberal globalization are going to notice the toy party keeps losing these cultural battles. It's like the festival of Brexit has turned out to just be like a really random odd job consortium, no collection of stuff. The creative industries would have done, would have wanted to do anyway. Um, This government this government clearly doesn't actually believe or imbibe the like Nick Timothy scripts, you know, of, of you know of the people versus the powerful, the rural suburban areas, provincial areas against the metropoles, because they're all elite conservatives. They're all products of you know the fancy universities, the fancy schools, the fancy places of work. And one, it will it will doom their political project because you know Brexit will continue to be like this thing that is kind of shamed and shunned in elite society with no pushback. They won't be able to mobilize or invigorate um, people who are administrators in government or civil society to work towards their ends. But it just means, you know, there is just more and more defeats for their voters, their their cultural um, allies. And this is where, to go back to what Simon's talking about, this is where Sunak's issues are so toxic. Because having once straddled that divide between uh, Brexiteers and Remainers, Nowheres, uh, uh, people of place, people of nowhere, you know, blah, blah, blah. He now exemplifies the divide and how the Tories deep down in private, in public, they're on one side, but in private, they're on the other side. And I I just feel like we're not going to get, Matthew Iglesias has written this about American politics, but I think he's, I think it applies to British politics as well. We're just not going to get to a good, happy place in British politics until the Tory party stops just push it, pushing their foot down on, make everybody who is not um, a graduate or in a fulfilling graduate job hate people who are graduates. Um, because what... All that is doing is, yes, it's, it means they win victories, but they are clearly Pyrrhic victories because the Tory party is confronted with people in all the commanding heights of civil society who hate them, refuse to do what they want. They are left with a hodgepodge of a programme that they can't implement 
and those elite conservatives themselves want to move around and have fun in elite society and they can't because everybody hates their guts you know it's just you know, it's just it's just a bad thing all around like how many articles do we see every year every month about some 20 something conservative who can't get laid and blames it on political correctness it's like no it's because your lot demonize everybody that you would actually want to have a relationship with and people don't like it and i uh, yeah i i i think the mess they've got into with sunak um should 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 provoke more soul searching from the tory party than just blaming sunak for having a bit of a glass jaw yeah no i agree i agree with almost all of that to be honest and now He's been waiting forever for his guitar solo on um, Ukraine. But he's going to have to wait for a second more because they need to go to the toilet. So, uh, Luke, Boris Johnson um, had a European city break at the weekend. Yeah, How did that go? Visited Keith. Um, okay, so I think, like, because we don't want this to go on for too long. So I think that the best way of doing it is just rather than me doing like updates on the situation, like if you're listening to this podcast, I think it's fair to assume that you're following along with events in Ukraine. So let's just do, let's just do my collection of hot takes. Firstly, first hot take is Olaf Schultz, what are you doing? Yes. Um... Now there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot I think unfairly been written about the the Germans, like the whole thing about the Ukrainians wanting to buy these Marder APCs that have been sitting in a field. Um, I think that's that's a red herring because yes, they are they are infantry fighting vehicles. Yes, they would be useful to Ukraine, but they've been sitting in a field since two thousand and nine. You try getting a car engine to turn over after it's been sitting in a field for more than a decade. So they're not going to be particularly useful. But what the Ukrainians want to do is buy new versions of that same equipment from Rheinmetall, which is like the biggest German arms manufacturer. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, Rheinmetall can put those together and ship them in six weeks. And the, the Marder is not awfully dissimilar to the, B, the, to the BPM-2, which is like the standard Ukrainian infantry fighting vehicle. It's a bit different in layout, but they're similar. They're similar enough that a couple of hours on a range, driving around with them, you ought, and following the instruction and book, you ought to be able to work out what's going on. And Olaf Schultz appear, appears to put a block on that. Um, they want they want to they want to buy Gepard. Um, they want to buy Gepard anti aircraft um, and armored anti aircraft vehicles. Again, this is nineteen eighties Cold War technology. Uh, Rheinmetall can knock can knock out those in a couple of weeks. They're not difficult to put together, and again, not dissimilar to uh, <coughs> not dissimilar to the kind of equipment that the Ukrainians are already using. These are not complicated. These are not complicated bits of machinery. It's not like 
it's not like you have to supply them with MIGs and sequoias because that those are the fighter jets they know how to use. These are actually relatively simple bits of armoured equipment that a couple of hours on a range should be enough to figure out how they work. <coughs> also, while we're talking about weapon systems, the army should have... I see another tweet saying that the Brit- Britain has supplied Ukraine with harpoon uh, missiles. I'm going to scream because we can't supply them with harpoon missiles. We don't use that kind of... We don't use that variant of the harpoon. Our harpoon missiles are ship to ship. What the Ukrainians want is... Um, is shorter ship, a surface to surface. We couldn't have supplied the Ukrainians with that variant of the harpoon because we don't use it. We don't have them. The Dutch do, the Danes do, I think the Greeks do, but we don't. Um, so yeah, that's just that's just misinformation. Um, in terms of what in terms of what the Ukrainians are being supplied with. It looks like the Czechs and the Slovaks are supplying them with their old T-72s. It looks like the Poles are doing the same. It's going to be crucially important over the next few weeks that, that NATO that NATO and the West more generally does figure out ways to supply Ukraine with heavier equipment. The other big issue is that Ukraine is starting to run short on artillery ammunition. And Ukraine is an ex-Soviet, you know, whose military is organized along our Warsaw Pact lines. They use a standard 152 millimeter artillery shell. Now that's awkward because 152 millimeter artillery shell, only Russia and China produce those. The standard NATO caliber is 155 millimeter. By the way, what that refers to is the diameter of the shell. Um, so you can't get a 155 millimeter shell in a gun designed for 152 millimeter. Does that make sense? It does. Um, so you're either going to you are either going to have to figure out a way to manufacture 152 millimeter shell, or we're going to have to completely resupply them with NATO standard caliber artillery i mean britain's already seems to have committed to supplying them with with british made artillery and again this is not actually that this is not actually that big a deal because again unlike aircraft artillery is actually relatively simple a big gun is a big gun is a big gun a couple of hours on a range you'll be able to figure out <coughs> you you'll be able to figure out how to use it. Now, artillery is going to, for the kind of fight that's probably going to take place in the Donbass in the next few weeks, few months, artillery is going to be crucial because this is, this is open, flat ground, much better for tanks than the territory around Kiev or Chernihiv or Sumy. Um, and also, like you look at the you look at the photographs and the videos, everybody talks about the importance of the javelins and the Enlaws and the other ATGMs, anti-tank guided missiles that Ukraine's been supplied with. But the vast majority of tank strike, the vast majority of Russian armor, I would say somewhere between 60 and 70 percent, based on the photos and videos I've seen, have been destroyed either by other tanks by Ukrainian tanks 
or more likely by artillery. And actually what's really interesting is the amount of footage you're now seeing of drones that are clearly like, you know, cheap commercial drones that are clearly flying over Russian columns and radioing back their coordinates to artillery, to artillery batteries. Um, so it's a really interesting mech- mixture of sort of 21st century technology and technology that hasn't changed much since the Second World War, to be honest. Um, now, obviously, I'm not going to go into this, but, you know, the Russians pulled out, uh, pulled out from around Kiev, pulled out from around Chernihiv, pulled out from around Sumy. So the first battle of Kiev is over. And it's a resounding Ukrainian victory. If you told me that 40 days ago, um, I would be surprised. I wouldn't be shocked, but it is incredible what the Ukrainians, is really noteworthy what the Ukrainians have achieved. Russia has taken losses of something like 30% in some of its frontline infantry units and about 22%. And, and it's frontline armor. Um, so the Russians are, like I said, the Russians are now reconcentrating um, their forces around Donbass to try and um, capture Donbass and Luhansk oblasts. They can do that. They can do that by they can do that by one of two ways. There's a they can either try and encircle Ukrainian forces. Uh, which I think is actually at this point is unlikely, given the losses they've taken. I don't think the Russians have the manpower or the infantry available to them to actually close all the roads, you know, all the roads leading west and actually isolate the Ukrainian units. Or more likely, they can just try and batter their way forward um, until the, until they re- until they reach the Dnieper, um, which is a large river in sort of eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're, I think we're in for, I think we're now in for several months of hard fighting and the key is going to be who can reach who can resupply and sustain supply of ammunition, supply of fuel, supply of, um, supply of medical equipment, supply of, um, you know, all sorts supply of all kinds, basically, because Russia has actually been quite effective in destroying Ukraine's military industrial complex. You know, Ukraine was a major center of manufacturing mm. for the Soviet arms industry, and that's carried over into the post-Soviet uh, era. So Ukraine's army at the start of this war was actually fairly self-sufficient in things like 152 millimeter shells. Those factories have been those factories have been heavily damaged, if not destroyed now. So Ukraine has actually become more dependent on outside supplies um, since this war started. Um, I mean, the the other the other thing I would say is that it looks like I know I've been saying this for weeks, but it looks like Mariupol um, in southeastern Ukraine will fall within the next couple of days because it looks like the Ukrainian defenders are pretty much out of ammunition. Um, that will free up some Russian forces, but frankly, the troops that have been fighting there have been fighting for so long, they're pretty much combat ineffective, which again makes an encircling movement in the Donbass much harder because you've only got one, you've only got a north to south axis of advance rather than a south to north 
axis of advance coming to meet, you know, coming together and meeting in the middle. Um, yeah, so I think at the I think at the I think at the moment the best way to describe the situation is stalemate, with both sides trying to resupply, trying to resupply and reinforce ahead of what I suspect is going to be very hard fighting, very hard fighting in May, June, July. Um, also, it appears that the Russians have now appointed a single theatre commander. Um, Alexander <laughs> Devoy. Um, late than never. So, sorry. Better late than never. Yeah, who is um, commander-in-chief of the Southern Military District. He did pick up, he has, he's I mean, his. If you look at his curriculum vitae, he is your standard, prototypical Soviet slash Russian staff officer. He punched all the tickets in terms of command experience. He um, commanded Russian forces for um, quite a long period of time in Syria, where he picked up the name, the um, nickname, the Butcher, which I think tells you quite a lot about the guy. Put it that way. Um, he was responsible for he's responsible for Russian for the Russian contribution to operations against the left one. So you know if I'm if I'm a Ukrainian in Kharkiv, if I'm a Ukrainian in um, Mariupol, you know that's the measure of that's the measure of the man who's now in charge of this invasion. Um, there have been numerous well-documented reports of Russian war crimes. Uh, we can talk about the we can talk about the legal and moral implications of that if you like, but on a military level. What's gonna be interesting is you are robbing Ukrainian units of any incentive to surrender. Mm. Um and you're also, and there's also been counter accusations, I think credible counter accusations of um, Russian and separatist POWs being executed in retribution. Um, so this, this, this is a war that's becoming more savage. It's a war that's not being fought by any kind, that increasingly isn't being fought by any kind of rules or with much restraint demonstrated. The other thing to say is that the separatist forces, the Russian allied forces in Donetsk and Luhansk, there is increasing evidence that large numbers of those troops are just deserting and going home. Um, so Russia has Russia has a serious. Basically, there are two dynamics going on here. It's can Russia supply enough manpower? to keep this offensive going. Can the Ukrainians, the the Russians have the weapons, but not the manpower. The Ukrainians have the manpower, but not necessarily the weapons. It's who solves up. The winner of this war will be the side that solves that, pop, that paradox first, basically. Which of course is where yeah. Britain, America and the Europeans come in. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I, I mean, I, I have a lot else to say, but not that I can say in a short amount of time. So what I suggest is that we do like another podcast at some point 
at some point soon where I can go into a lot more detail if you want me to. Yeah, I mean, I I would just go go and kind of go around the room, which is, um, obviously, um, there had been talks of peace negotiations. They kind of, when the atrocities in Russian-occupied Ukraine and the bits of northern Ukraine they've they've retreated from, became fully apparent. Those that talk has gone away, but. What is the end game? What is the best possible, not the likely end game, because there's no way of us knowing it, but what do we think is the best possible end game? And I will go with Simon first, so he can't copy his Luke's answer. What's the best possible? Oh, I mean, I, I, re- I mean, I really don't know because, you know, in the idealist, obviously, would be, you know, would be to say, oh, well, get, you know, Russian, Russian troops out of all of, the parts of Ukraine and, you know, because this was an unprovoked attack, but, you know, at the end, at the end of the day, the, the, the best case scenario is this, this war, which is, as Luke was saying, horrifically brutal at the moment. And I'm sure there's stuff we don't have, we're not seeing yet. Um, I, you know, we need, it just needs to be ended. And I suppose the best case scenario is that, we're able to find a way of getting the right um, large and enough weapons to the Ukrainian authorities, which um, to actually allow to allow them to do to to, to finish this off. But um, how, how likely that is, I'm not sure. It's been it's it's a very kind of you know it's a slow ratcheting process and has been after a while. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's weird, like as. Um... As we talked about before, I am one of those, you know, squishy, um, anti-NATO, pro, quote-unquote, pro-Russian people. But, like, I always, when it, when the build-up started, I was like, well, look, there's only one way to sense. Because, I think Lavrov said this, didn't he? Like, you know, we're not, we're not here for bits of Ukraine. We're here for it all. Um, and the way war works is is war objectives usually inflate during wartime rather than being defined down because you have to justify the sacrifice that people have made already. You know, yes, it would make a lot of sense for the Russians to say, ah, yeah, well, we, we were kidding when we tried to take, um, we tried to take Kiev. That was a joke. We, we, we actually only want the Donbass. Um, we only want Crimea and a land bridge to Transistria. And then we'll be on our way. But that doesn't work when you've made people die to take Kiev, you know, you have to have something to say to, you know, the people who are mourning those soldiers who died. And the easiest thing to say is, oh, no, they were killed by bad people. We we fight on. We fight. We fight harder. And it's like the atrocities we are starting to see. 
these are not just predictable. They were predicted. You know, the 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 Americans, um, our own government, were saying that you know the Russians' plan was to basically come in and execute people they thought were collaborators with an illegitimate government. Um, and I don't, and I, and I don't. I mean, I know for like international opinion. The Ukrainian government is um, adopting a position of of shock. <clears throat> I don't think they're shocked at all at what the Russians did in those areas. I think they thought that this is exactly what the Russians would would do, because it's you know, it's kind of what the Russians do in war, and it's very difficult to see what a PCO looks like short of the Russians being actually beaten outright in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. At that point, maybe you get a PCO where they could they can keep what they had before um, March two thousand March of this year. But you know, I I can't see how Ukraine will easily um, allow for bits of its territory to um, stay in Russian hands, knowing what the Russians will do. And also, like it has to be said, and this is the thing I, I got so agitated about this, I wrote 5,000 words. <laughs> Not too much good, but I wrote 5,000 words about this. This idea that there's a future where Ukraine is neutral, but like the West promises that it won't be invaded, is such a dead end. Like either we will we will fight to protect Ukrainian independence from now on, in which case you might as well have Ukraine and NATO, or we won't. In which case we should tell Ukraine, ah, sorry, you're on your own. Make the best deal you can with the Russians. Um. There are no half measures. There is no third way. Either they're part of our club or they're part of the Russians' club. And um, it, 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 it is up for us to choose. It's up for the Ukrainians to choose. We know what the Ukrainians want to do. They want to be part of our club because it's the path to prosperity. Um, we have to decide whether we're willing to let them in. And letting them in means if the Russians try and do this again we will risk nuclear war to stop Ukraine being part of Russia. Um, well, I can, t- I, can tell you, I can tell you one thing, I think with a great deal of confidence, this war isn't ending anytime soon. <laughs> and the reason for that is quite simple. Both sides, both sides can imagine a way in which they can win. And while ever that, and while ever that, while ever that is true, they have very little. Both sides have very little intended to sit down and negotiate seriously. I think the point you made, Will, is a good one. I think that that though Russia has, though Russia has recalibrated tactically and operationally, its strategic goal remains the same, i.e., the conquest of the entirety of Ukraine. 
what they're doing now, but what they're what I think the Russian plan now is by concentrating on Donbass, they can hopefully limit some of the some of the logistical problems they've been having previously by fighting closer to Russia, um, by fighting closer to territory they already control. And what the Russians, I think, are clearly trying to do is they're trying to draw the best units of the Ukrainian army back east. Because we now know that a lot of the best units of the Ukrainian army were redeployed last minute to defend Kiev. Um, just prior to they, they did it very quietly and very quickly but in the last sort of few days of February before the invasion they actually pulled a lot of units out of the JFO the Ukrainian forces facing Donbass and redeployed them to Kiev the Russians are now trying to draw those units back east to destroy them um, and then leave a pathway open to conquer the rest of the country i think i mean that's 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 true but as um i don't know if you've heard of him luke um an academic called philip <laughs> o'brien yeah I, I know phil yeah uh, oh, oh oh phil is it oh, okay um yeah but he, he we, make... we, 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 we work in the same department yeah. oh, oh really oh really how yeah. fascinating um but like as he has he's made a point of the yeah. issue the russians have is they're trying to get people, they're going to try and get divisions from northern, western Ukraine. Yeah. To southern, eastern Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long, slow, difficult process. Which probably involves them going back into Russia, at, at which point people may disappear and not come back. Yeah. And we should bear in mind the loss of, the loss of life is staggering. <laughs> it's like nothing, it's like nothing, like, this this phrase gets overused, but in this particular context, it's absolutely true. This is like nothing we've seen um, since the Second World War, because not even the, the, the various conflicts in the Middle East are comparable to this. The Russians have probably lost somewhere between twenty and 30,000 dead at this point. Probably, time, probably one and a half times as many wounded. We have, we have much... We have much um, We've done much less information on the Ukrainian losses, but I would I would really doubt that they were lighter, and they're probably they're probably a little bit heavier. Um, Russia's lost, but we can visually confirm just from open sources that Russia's lost four hundred and fifty odd tanks. That's three divisions worth of tanks. That's astonishing. Um, to say nothing of myriad artillery pieces, infantry fighting vehicles, trucks, um, you know, armored vehicles of all kinds. The, the losses of equipment and and human life are just—they are like literally. Phil actually did a did a thread on this earlier this evening. They are comparable to sort of second world to sort of second world war rates of loss. And the thing is, the Second World War in the Second World War, you had economies complete. You had economies and societies completely mobilized for war. That isn't true. That isn't true. That isn't true of Russia now. It's somewhat true of Ukraine, but not completely. And what's what's going to be fascinating is 
how do you how do you replace those losses? How do you regenerate combat power? And we've never had a situation where modern weapons have been lost in this quantity before. So how can you replace? Because it's one of the one of the one of the problems is that as weaponry becomes more sophisticated, it becomes harder to manufacture and therefore harder to replace. Um, and yeah, it's it's going to be it's basically it's basically which side basically the winner is going to be determined by which side can generate fully equipped forces for the longest. And I really don't know at this point which. I really don't know at this point whether that's going to be Russia or Ukraine, but that's how this war will end, not by negotiation. One side will one side will collapse. I don't know which. And on that cherry note, Ivan will calling. He's going to look me up. He's been so an Alvi, and neither of us have said anything as stupid. As Crispin Blunt has said whilst we've been on air. Oh, for goodness sake. So that's that's good to know. Talk to you again in a while.